This is Neil Ratnarokdak here on the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. My biggest pet peeve is the fact that natural products are unregulated. Mm -hmm. And being a scientist Mm -hmm. and being a doctor, it's very important to me to know exactly what I'm putting in my body. Right. Or your patient's body. Or your patient's body, exactly. And so, although I think there's fabulous products out there and there are great manufacturers, it's difficult to sort through and know who's who and what's what. Couldn't be said better. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. On today's podcast, we have our very first in-studio guest. I feel like we're growing up so fast here at the Big Mouth Pharmacist. We have Woodstock resident Dr. Neil Ratner, the rock doc. He's going to tell us his whole life story. One of the coolest things about living in this town and why I brag so much about being here, besides it's so famous for the concert, it's really famous for the collection of all these like low-key, super connected, amazing people with amazing stories. And I think Dr. Neil Ratner really fits into that category here. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with the rock doc, Dr. Neil Ratner. Like I was saying before we started recording here, our podcast is about wellness, weed, and Woodstock, Mm -hmm. and you fit firmly into that Woodstock (laughs) category, but you also move into that wellness side too, because you're a physician. So I think like your story is really, really awesome, and I'm excited to have you here to talk about it. So you're not from Woodstock though, right? No, no. Where'd you grow up? uh, Well, I spent the first five years in my little apartment with my parents in Brooklyn. Nice. And then as uh, my father's business, you know, my father had a family business. Him and and his brother started a trucking and warehousing company. Yep. And as that company started to get more popular and he made a little bit of money, he moved out to the suburbs. Moving on up. (laughs) (laughs) And the suburbs back in the late 50s met Long Island. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we moved to a place called the Five Towns, okay. Woodmere, Cedarhurst, Lawrence, Inwood. And that's right on the Queens-Nassau border, mm-hmm. uh, right next to what would become what was Idlewild Airport back then, and it eventually became Kennedy. Gotcha. And so that's where I went to uh, grade school. That's where I went to high school. And uh, as soon as I graduated high school, I left as quickly as I could. <laughs> as humanly possible. You had that normal story. But you liked music as you were a child. I, I did. You know, I grew up with two dreams. Mm-hmm. One was to be a drummer. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I like to say that I grew up with rhythms in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and they had to come out one way or another. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, I was constantly taking silverware and banging it on the table or mm-hmm. playing my knees mm-hmm. or whatever. And my mother would always say, Neil, stop banging on the table. And eventually, after a few years of that, both my mother and father realized that I was serious about wanting to be a drummer. And so they bought me a small set of drums, gave me some lessons, and I was off and running. So they weren't the kind of parents that were uh, you know, telling you to not do that and go to school and focus on things that were more serious? Or, or were they... You know, yeah, of course they were telling me to focus on things that were more serious, but they liked the fact that I had a hobby, Yeah, and they encouraged the hobby, and they encouraged the music, although they weren't 
really music-oriented people. Neither played an instrument. Uh, they did have a, an, a, you know, a stereo back in those days. So <laughs> the the, the love for music just really came from within, and, and came it was from within. Yeah, yeah. I think I was born with it. So the nice thing then is that you got out, and let's talk about that. Like, what happened once you were of age and it's time to go? Where did you go? What did you see? What did you do? I played in uh, in bands mm-hmm. all through high school. Yeah, I was in the marching band in high school, which okay. was a, which is a cool experience. I have to tell you. Yeah, well, learn so a lot cool of, about it. I'll tell you what's cool for a drummer. If you're paying attention, the rhythms and the marching beats that you play will be very useful as a oh, really? kick drummer mm-hmm. later on in a band mm-hmm. because they're quite intricate, quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And if you adapt some of that, mm-hmm. you know, particularly if you're into R&B, soul, funk, yeah. some of that was really good stuff. So I played in the school marching band. I played in the orchestra. But of course, I also had little bands on the side. Right. And we would do uh, whatever gigs we could get, mm-hmm. you know, uh, little parties, temples and churches <laughs> and, and you know, high school pep rallies. And, uh, you know, we got quite far and it looked like we had an opportunity to get a record deal. Oh. You know, we got very close to getting a record deal, but of course it never happened. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, as a middle class uh, kid in the suburbs, you know, there was no question that I was going to college. Right. Fortunately for me, I did have another dream. For reasons unbeknownst to me, I was attracted to the human body and how it worked mm-hmm. and how to fix it. And I was fascinated with the idea that you could actually understand it well enough to give certain medications or use your hands and actually fix a living, breathing organism. Right. And so that, that, that really fascinated me, and that, that was always my goal. If I was to go to school, mm-hmm. it was to be pre-med and to try and become a doctor. Did you do that right away? What, right away. Right away, right pre-med. Away. Mm-hmm. Right away. Graduated high school, applied mm-hmm. to a number of colleges, got mm-hmm. into a few. Yep. I was a skier and thought that I needed to go somewhere where I could be able to ski. And so I chose University of Vermont. Okay. And in 1967, I went off to UVM. How did you get into music? Because you have quite the extensive music background. You're the, the rock the doc. The rock doc. So there is two, two sides. Rock doc. There's two sides <laughs> to this coin, not just the doctor side. Yeah, side. yeah, absolutely. Where did the rock part start besides your love for music and such? Well, you it did some... start with mm-hmm. my love for music. There's no question about it that it started with my love for music and my desire to be a rock and roll drummer. Yes. You know, I grew up in the late 50s and the 60s, mm-hmm. you know, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, sure. the Rolling Stones, British Invasion. Yeah. You know, any kid my age that played an instrument had dreams of becoming that. Yes. So I went to University of Vermont and I, uh, I of course, got immediately in a band. Yep. And in those years, 67, college campuses were hotbeds of political activity and various things, and it was easy to get distracted from from studies. Mm -hmm. Between my, I think it was my sophomore and junior year, as you know, Neil, medical schools back then and now Mm -hmm. are very difficult to get into. There's just not enough spots for the number of people that want to get in. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for an advantage, as everybody was. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get myself into a training program, a two-month training program at a hospital in New York City, Mm -hmm. where at the end, I would have a license as an operating room technician. Oh, great. And I thought, this this is a good thing, you know, this will definitely give me an advantage. I'll learn. Because I was having leanings at that point towards surgery. 
mm-hmm. you know, again, that whole thing, wow, yeah. take your hands, cut and sew and whatever. Really, yeah. Yeah, it seemed like an amazing thing. Good fit for a drummer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I took this uh, job, you know, this training program spot, and I needed an apartment in the city. So I got a sublet on 13th Street between 1st and 2nd Avenue. Okay. And now this is the summer of 69. You can imagine what... 13th Street was uh, on the east side of Manhattan in the summer of 69. It was the East Village, and all kinds of cool things were happening. Sure. The Fillmore was sort of down the block on 2nd Avenue there. Anderson Theater with Old Calcutta. Just on the west side, you had the Electric Circus. And hippies hanging out everywhere, and the smell of weed everywhere. Wonderful. <laughs> it was a very cool time to yes. be in that part of the city. And so I move into this apartment, and within a very short period of time, I start hearing music coming from upstairs neighbors. Now, I'm a musician, you know, yeah. and so, and I'm a curious guy. Right, mosquito to a light. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I got to go upstairs. Right. I go upstairs, and I just knocked on the door. I figured, let me see who opens the door. And lo and behold, a guy opens the door, and I didn't really know who he was at that moment. But within a very short period of time, I realized who he was. He told me who he was, and it was somebody named Rick Derringer. Okay. Now, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with who Rick Derringer is. Rick Derringer is a rock and roll musician. Mm -hmm. And Rick started out with his brother and some local friends in a band called the McCoys. And the McCoys became huge with a song called Hang On Sloopy. And that was a number one hit. And Rick had become famous through that. But he was no longer with the McCoys. He had moved to New York because he started to play with this albino guitar (laughs) guitar phenomenon named Johnny Winter. Johnny Winter was an albino guitar player from Texas Mm -hmm. uh, that had just signed the largest contract of any musician ever he got a six hundred thousand dollar advance (laughs) back in 1969 huge yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. there was a bidding war which was won by clive davis who Mm -hmm. was with columbia records at the time and clive offered him an advance of six hundred thousand which beat the previous record the year before when ahmed erdogan of atlantic records had given led zeppelin two hundred fifty thousand dollars wow so johnny beat it by Quite a margin. (laughs) For sure. And so Rick was was Rick and his brother and uh, Randy Hobbs, another member of the McCoys, were going to be Johnny Winter's new band, Johnny Winter and. And uh, Rick and I became really friendly that summer. He heard me play the drums. He sort of included me in his circle of friends, which was quite amazing because Rick was hooked into Andy Warhol back then. And he used to hang out at the factory Andy's, you know, kind of studio place and stuff. And so you were in that scene with... I was in that scene very go. early on wow. uh, when I would meet all these outrageous people and you never knew who would show up to Rick's apartment. And of course, once they got to know me, <laughs> they would show up in my apartment as well. Oh, great. And yeah. there were some wild stories. It was a wild summer. It was a crazy summer. I think that's the biggest thing I took away from your book is just like all the crazy characters that you Oh, uh, you know, I've just Just been, from just putting yourself out there too. Just putting myself out there. Right. Not being afraid 
to go upstairs and knock on a door. And that was kind of my MO throughout my life, not right. being afraid to uh, put myself out there when I wanted to know something or meet somebody or be something. You know, I think all too often people defeat themselves. You know, yeah. they decide beforehand, they had this long mental conversation and they decide beforehand, nah. I shouldn't do it. Yeah, they talk themselves out of it. Absolutely. Talk themselves out yeah, of it. We deal with it all the time with our wellness consults and stuff like that. I'm, I'm ready. I'm motivated, ready to go. But then every excuse in the world comes up and they talk themselves or out of it. Or one person will come to them and tell them they shouldn't do it. The naysayer. Yeah. And yeah. And mm -hmm. even though they know and they've done the research, yeah. that one person will be enough to tip the balance. For sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so that's pretty crazy. So at any rate, I went back to college. And I said, Rick, get me a job as a drummer. <laughs> right. And Rick said, you know, you're pretty good and we'll see. You mm -hmm. never know. Mm -hmm. About somewhere around a year later or something like that, I got a call from Rick. And I was very excited because sure? I totally expected that he had a gig for me as a drummer. Mm -hmm. You know, we had kept in contact. And actually, I had seen him and I had met Johnny Winter. It's another crazy story. I can mm -hmm. tell it later if you want. <laughs> but at any rate, Rick called me up. He said, Neil, got a job for you. I said, great. He said, you know, Johnny's got a brother named Edgar. I said, okay. And Edgar just formed the band of his dreams. And I was expecting him to say, and they and want you the to drummer. be the drummer. <laughs> and he says, and we want you to be the road manager. And I said, Wah -wah. road manager? <laughs> yeah, right. First of all, I didn't know what a road manager was. Right. What does that even mean? It didn't <laughs> sound like something I wanted to be. Right. But he talked and he talked and he said, look, man. It's a cool job. You'll meet lots of people. You never know what will happen. Right. You'll, you'll meet a ton of musicians. So this is a friend just, uh, just trying to help you out and get you into the industry. That exactly. Kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Convince me to take this opportunity. Right. Even though it wasn't what I was looking for, mm -hmm. he knew it was a great opportunity, even if I didn't know it was a great opportunity. Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I quit college and I took the job. And that started me on a... How'd your parents take that? My father took away the car, the allowance, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't speak to him for probably a year or two. Mm -hmm. Communicated with my mother, but he uh, he decided that, you know, if I Tough wanted love. to take that route, mm -hmm. take that route. Right. But he wasn't going to be involved. Gotcha. So that didn't go well. But the funny part of that story is I worked my way up, so to speak, with different jobs in the business. And eventually, I came up with a new concept for rock and roll. I had been with some major, major groups. And I saw that when these groups toured, they would use a multitude of companies for a multitude of services. Mm -hmm. So there would be a trucking company, there would be a sound company, a lighting company, an accountant, a travel agent. And it was ridiculous. And don't forget, this is in a time when there are no cell phones right. and no computers. None. Technology didn't help us mm -hmm. <laughs> back in those days. Right. You know, so it was very difficult. And my concept was I had met when I was on the road, I was a tour manager for Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And when we were in Paris, we got to meet a French rock star named Johnny Halliday. Now, Johnny Halliday was like the French Elvis. Okay. He was that popular, huge, huge. And the way he would tour is he would pack up his trucks and he had everything. He had sound lighting, everything, all owned, all his. He'd pack up his trucks and he also had a circus tent. And he was popular enough that he could go out anywhere in the French countryside 
put up a tent. Everything's self-enclosed within that tent. Mm-hmm. Advertise a little bit on radio, TV, put up some posters. And boom. He'd sell out for as many nights as he wanted to play. And then he'd pack up his tent and he'd go somewhere else. And then, you know, a light bulb kind of went off in my head. Why can't I do that for the rock and roll business? Why can't I have an all-in-one company? Mm-hmm. Sound, lighting, trucking, travel, accounting. Excuse the expression, but even drugs and hookers. For sure. <laughs> Anything anybody wants. A crucial component of the rock and crucial roll experience. Crucial component. Come mm-hmm. on, man. Mm-hmm. Just come to me. Mm-hmm. I'll do it. Nice. <laughs> and so uh, I did form that company, ultimately. What's that company called? Circus Talents Limited. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful name. That was one of my favorite parts. So, so then at this point, you've created a business and a niche, and you're... Well, what I was going to say, though, Mm -hmm. I think the reason I I brought that story up at this particular moment was, by that point, my father totally realized that the music business was a serious business with real money. And so once I had gotten to the point of forming the company, we were talking again, of course. Yeah. And he said- Well, he's got the trucks too, right? Well, he said, you know, (laughs) so what do you want me to do? (laughs) I'm in. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, he he sort of became a silent partner. And better than that, he decided that he wanted to come on the road on one of these tours for a while just to see what it was all about. Oh, wow. And so for 10 days, he came on an Emerson Lake and Palmer tour in Europe. Uh, and it's a great part of the book. I think people will enjoy that. Yeah. It was a little strange for me having your father on the road. Right, the drugs and, roll, and hookers but, part has to stay kind uh, of to yeah, the side. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I tried to be as cool no, as I could. No, I'm not that guy. Dad's right there. But it was what it was. And, you know, I have to thank Emerson, Lake, and Palmer because they were all really gracious and they, they really liked my father and called him the coach. And <laughs> <laughs> he bonded with them. And so it was kind of a cool thing. Very, very cool thing. How does circus come to an end? Circus came to an end because after about five years, I guess the pinnacle of circus was I got to, my company got to co-produce the Dark Side of the Moon tour for the Pink Floyd. There you go. And that was a serious accomplishment. Yeah. And so after that, we had bid on, I think, a Stones tour and lost it. And I had a a, a history of kidney stones. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with another brutal attack of kidney stones in a hospital in London. And it was late one night, and an American movie came on TV called Not as a Stranger. It follows a group of residents as they become doctors. And I don't know if it was the drugs, (laughs) the late night, uh, (laughs) all the stress that I had been building for all those years, but I broke into tears, and I just couldn't control my emotions. And I truly had an epiphany, and I said, you know what? I could be one of those guys. It's not too late. I still have that dream. I'm not going to be a drummer. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've done everything I want in the business side of the business. And, you know, I was a big believer in life that you could do many things in life. And yes. that, mm-hmm. you know, if you believed in yourself and you really put blinders on and you had strong enough intent. Right. Because, you know, I think we're co-creators with the universe of our own reality. We are. And it's totally based on our intent and how we input our, our intent into the universe to make that happen. And so uh, at that moment, I decided I'm done. I had a partner. I knew he wasn't done. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes it easy for one person to get out. For makes sure. it easy mm-hmm. for one person to get out. And mm-hmm. so he was actually quite anxious to buy the business. And I couldn't understand at the time 
why he was oh, <laughs> why he was so anxious to buy the equipment. But he did. He bought the business, and then I had to actually get serious about reapplying to college. Uh, you know, I walked out of college, dismissed for low scholarship. I didn't, ha- I didn't have much. You know, I had you know a couple of credits that I could save, and mostly not. And colleges were not too thrilled with accepting me at that point. Yeah. Again, there was a glut at colleges. Vietnam War was coming to an end. Eventually, Hofstra University mm-hmm. decided I was serious enough to take me into a, a pre-med program. So uh, you wrapped up the pre-med program, got into a medical program. What did that look like? Yeah, well, that was another trip, you know, because, again, medical school was impossible to get into, even harder than probably it would have been had I gone straight through college. So, you know, I applied to 25 medical schools, got rejected from 25 medical schools. The fortunate thing was there were foreign medical schools that were very aware of the problems in American schools. And so they designed their programs so that they could accept the overflow of American students. I knew of the program in Guadalajara, Mexico. Guadalajara seemed like the best shot for me. And I checked it out, and people were definitely getting back into the American system. It was a real legitimate way of going. I had a little Spanish under my belt from high school, college, Mm -hmm. and I took a trip down there to look at the school, to see what it was, and I decided that was probably my best course of action. And uh, rock and roll, man. I was going to Mexico. I was going to medical school in Mexico in Spanish. Medical school in Spanish, I think, is probably the subtitle to your book. Medical school in Spanish, yeah. Wow, that's a pretty intense period. Oh, my goodness, yeah. It was more intense. Of course, I'm that kind of person that always has to make things a little bit more intense. I met a woman in the middle of this uh, while I was going to Hofstra, and we decided that we were going to get married. And Mm -hmm. so not only was I going to medical school in Mexico in Spanish, but I was taking my new wife with me who didn't (laughs) speak a word of Spanish. (laughs) So she was very adventurous. She was very adventurous. Yeah, we we spent our honeymoon driving from uh, New York City to Guadalajara, Mexico. Wow. And then we spent the next four years, more or less, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And she was a trooper, man. Yeah. She really did well. But she's, I know her personally, so I can agree. Yes, she You is know her personally, but I doubt that you know anything about her. I can't her. wait to get her she, on the podcast. Well, she has an interesting <laughs> story. Just very briefly, mm-hmm. she left home in Cleveland at like 16 years old with like 50 bucks in her pocket and took a Greyhound bus to New York City and started working for Arthur Murray because she was a dancer. Wow. Uh, ended up as a Vegas showgirl, as a Playboy bunny uh, down at the Playboy Club in New Orleans, and as the bunny mother of the Playboy Club in New York City back in the day, wow. where she would take care of all the girls and make sure they were dressed right and involved in hiring and stuff. And wow. Also one of the first women to be a private exercise trainer. And she had a gym specifically for women in the early 80s before anybody did on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Yeah, so she's got a story unto herself. And then we, uh, we drove to Guadalajara and uh, spent the next four years there. We had an interesting way, though, of dealing with the Spanish. Um, because as, as you indicated, Neil, you know, that's quite a chore. It's an and, impossible and chore. I, it I it is an impossible it. chore. It sure. was for us anyway. Yeah. You know, we could be conversational. We could get by. But to sit through lectures and lectures, to try and right. understand, you know, medicine 
which is hard enough to understand sometimes yeah. in Spanish. Although you have a lot of Latin and Greek uh, words, you of know, course. rooted so words, shared, so you can right? you mm -hmm. can at least recognize what this is or that is. Mm -hmm. But the sentences, the in betweens. When when I went to Guadalajara, it was 1976, and it was shortly after the first wave of Cubans came to this country after uh, Batista had been overthrown by Castro. Okay. And the first wave of Cubans were the Cuban elite, the, the rich Cubans. And so many of their children wanted to be doctors, and they couldn't get into American medical schools. Uh -huh. So Guadalajara was a very viable option for them. They were somewhat bilingual, much more than we were. Certainly fluent in Spanish, but pretty good in English. We were not so good in Spanish, obviously, very good in English. Right. They wanted to get back into the American system just like we did. So we devised a plan with them where we would have these study groups at night. Because we would sit through class. It was interesting. The school was geared towards the Mexican students, which were a lot younger than the American students. Right. And to make sure that they got it, it was like 90% attendance required. Unlike American schools where they could they care, care less. Yeah. You get note-taking services. You could do what you want. There it was 90% attendance. And so we didn't want to go to class because we would devise these study groups at night with the Cubans. The Cubans would teach us Spanish. We would teach them English. And we would have old tests. So we would be able to work it out and whatnot. But staying up till 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning doing these study groups made it difficult to go to class at 7 o'clock in the morning and stay there till 4 or 5 in the afternoon. And so we would devise all these crazy ways of trying not to be in class. I mean, initially, the uh, proctor would, you had a seat that you had to sit in, right? Yeah. And all the seats were numbered. If you weren't in the seat. They see a number, they know yeah. you're not there. So right? we would hire Mexicans to, to <laughs> sit in our seats. <laughs> But they, they got that one quickly. Yeah. And then we, just, we all just got sunglasses, and they didn't seem to care if we sat in class with sunglasses, so you just sleep. So the one theme that I'm picking up here is the hustle. Like, I want to say the hustle, but it's kind of like being so inventive and really kind of pushing the boundaries of whatever situation's in front of you. I really appreciate that about you here, and especially knowing that story. So let's, let's now fast forward, and you're doing your residency, and you're deciding what you want to do, and you pick anesthesiology. So let's talk about your anesthesiology career, I guess. Let's start where it started. And I, I like how that transformed and you pushed the boundaries there. So let's Yeah, talk. well, I, you know, as I said, initially I thought surgery was for me. Mm -hmm. And so after doing a year of unpaid internship called the Fifth Pathway, right. which is how foreign medical students get back into the American system and then they're able to take uh, the FLEX exam, the foreign licensing exam, and then you're... You're the same as an, as an American-trained doctor in that you're fully licensed and can do anything that a U.S.-trained doctor can't. As time went on, I realized that I, I didn't want to be the kind of anesthesiologist that I saw in the hospital. I couldn't see myself. What was so bad about those guys? It's not that there was anything bad about those guys. I didn't like the job description. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be on call every third night. Right. I didn't want to have to be in a group. Right. I didn't want to have to do every type of surgery. Right. There were certain types of surgeries that I preferred mm -hmm. to others. Brain surgery was a drag oh, as sure. an anesthesiologist. 
you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, 15 hours, you know. Mm -hmm. The thing about anesthesia, for me and most of my colleagues, minutes of terror with hours of boredom. Right, because, yes. The The takeoffs and landings. And God forbid if something goes wrong. Of course. But if things are running smooth, you're sitting there for hours watching monitors. And it takes a certain type of person to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Not somebody with such an exciting life to do. I wasn't sure <laughs> I was that type of person. Right. Or a fidgeter drummer. You probably start slamming drummer. around on yeah, people's you got it, man. head you with got scalpels. It. You yes, got I it. get it. So what are you going to do, idiot? Right. You just did an anesthesia residency. Right. You're not going to give that up. Or are you? Mm-hmm. And so then I went on a little quest to see, well, do I have to be an anesthesiologist or there's something else I could do? Now... This was the early 80s, and I was still very, very into music. And lo and behold, there was a new channel on TV, and the channel was called MTV, (laughs) (laughs) Music Television. When they played music on MTV. I came up with this concept. I was a TV freak, I'll admit it, man. I grew up on TV, I watched a lot of TV, I was a TV freak. And so I knew that... Most of the networks were starting to get medical representatives, you know, as on-camera guys who were on their staff. And I thought to myself, hmm, got a new channel, MTV, for a certain demographic. Wouldn't it be great to be their doctor? Right. So I'll be their doctor. I've got music experience. I'm a doctor. And I came up with the concept of the rock doc. And what the rock doc was going to do is the rock doc would come up with interesting medical stories that applied to that generation that watched MTV, which I was a little older, but still, you know, sort of part hip of. enough, right. Yeah, hip mm-hmm. enough and sort of part of. And then I would get a rock star to comment on my story, to discuss that story with me. And that would be the show. And so I found a lawyer who had a connection to MTV. No, I'm, I'm still a resident, an anesthesia resident. Yeah. And they said, okay, write a story. We'll listen to it. And so I came up with this idea. I don't know if you remember. You're probably too young. I'm a young buck. I know you are. At any rate, there was a runner named Jim Fix. It's an interesting story because he's the guy who really started the running craze. People didn't run back in the, the day. Casual running. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Jim Fix wrote a book mm-hmm. and he was the man. He was in his early 40s, I think, and he dropped dead while running. Mm. (laughs) And when they did the autopsy, they found that he had a severe amount of atherosclerosis. His coronaries were were jammed jammed with plaque. Mm -hmm. And so what's the message here? He looked great. He wrote wrote books on on running, on on health, on this and that. But obviously, he didn't have the right medical attention to at least check him out to make sure he was as healthy as he thought he was. And the message of the story was, yeah, you're all young and you think you're infallible and you think you're never going to die and blah, 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 blah. But take this as a lesson and and at least check yourself out once in a while and blah, 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 blah. I did the story and I went up to MTV and I presented it to the program director at the time. He said, I love it, but record companies are not going to give me money for this as ads, go get a sponsor, I'll put it on the air. Right. I actually hired somebody, spent a lot of money, couldn't get a sponsor. I wasn't going on MTV. The lawyer, however, said, you're really good at this. He said, I got a friend. 
He's the news director at WNBC-TV in New York. This guy was such a character, man. It was a guy named Jerry Knackman, and he was right out of a Damon Runyon book. <laughs> the guy was fat with a dirty white shirt hanging out of his pants, and he had suspenders. He had a stain on his shirt, stump of a cigar in his mouth. I right. mean, for real. He I'm was really one of these right. kind mm -hmm. of guys, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, of course, he liked me because I wasn't your average doctor or anything to walk in there. He was looking for somebody to be the on-camera guy for NBC News. So he said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Write a story. I'll send you out with my best producer, cameraman, sound guy. Let me see what you can do. If I like it, you got the job. So I went to the anesthesia department in Lenox Hill. I had a connection there. I was an anesthesia resident. Figure I'll do a story on anesthesia. Sure. And they agreed to let me film in the operating room. Wow. And so I went in this with... before HIPAA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> way before HIPAA. I went in with camera crew yeah. and did a story on anesthesia. Brought it back to Jerry. Loved it. You got the job. Kid, you got the job. <laughs> I'm excited, man. I don't have to be an anesthesiologist anymore. I'm going to be a media <laughs> celebrity. We wanted MTV doctor guys. Jack, my lawyer, said, yeah, I'll negotiate the deal. Don't worry. And we talked about what I wanted at this and that. Two days later, I get a call from Jack. I can hear in his voice something's yeah. gone wrong. Neil, uh, what, Jack? What's, what's the problem? Jerry's no longer at NBC. Oh. He got the job as uh, editor of the New York Post. And the next guy could care less about you. Yeah. How to be an anesthesiologist. All right, back to the drawing board. So now I got serious about anesthesia. And I started looking, what can I do? There must be something else I could do. So there were some potentials. Anesthesiologists did become something called intensivists, meaning they could run ICUs. And I liked that part of my rotation when I did it at Beth Israel. You yeah. get to run the ICU for a month or two, mm -hmm. but too stressful. The other thing uh, that an anesthesiologist could do is go into pain, you know, some sort of pain management. Mm -hmm. But back in those days, it was still a little bit new. You know, I wasn't that good at blocks. <laughs> so I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. And then I realized that, particularly around the world, there were many doctors operating in their office with office anesthesiologists. And anesthesiologists would come in the office and give anesthesia. And when I looked around New York, I realized that wasn't happening. Yeah. And there were reasons for it. There were no surgery centers yet in New York because of certain healthcare laws and certain kind of specifications that people didn't want to go through. You know, it was still... Uh, Bureaucratic and... Uh, yeah, you know. it just hadn't happened yet. Right. It hadn't happened yet. Part of the reason it hadn't happened also from an anesthetic point of view, part of the reason why it was more popular in Europe than it was in America was the drugs and monitors that were available at that time in America were not at all geared towards office-based surgery and office-based anesthesia. Everything was geared towards hospital-based surgery and anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And of course, anesthesiologists were nervous, you know, to go alone into an office, whereas in a hospital, you know, you got a hospital filled with people. You yeah. got a whole anesthesia team. God forbid something comes wrong. Right. Codes you know, goes and wrong. You you, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you mm -hmm. got all kinds of people and all kinds of stuff. In an office, you're on your own. Right. So that was one fear. The drugs, as I said, weren't geared. The monitors weren't geared. But I thought, with my experience with drugs, and again, the rock and roll drugs, street drugs, not that different than prescription drugs. Everything's an analog of something else, of really. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I could uh, effectively go into an office, 
mixed drugs in a way. And I had, I had my own unique attitude towards this. A little bit more cavalier, you'd say? A lot more cavalier, <laughs> but, but in a different way. Yeah, a lot, a lot more cavalier in that I, uh, you know, I did something nobody else was willing to do, and I, I was able to accomplish it, even though there were great risks involved. So I became an office-based anesthesiologist, one of the first in New York City. And fortunately for me, within a very short period of time, the drugs got better and the monitors got better. Right. As the demand grew, the industry changed and answered the, well, the call. Well, there were things in development just to make anesthesia safer in general. Yeah. I don't think these things were developed specifically for office-based anesthesia. And the two things that I'm talking about is, number one, the monitor that made the huge difference was the pulse oximeter. Mm -hmm. And the pulse oximeter is that little thing they put over your finger. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it, it shoots a special ray of light through the nail bed to measure the density of hemoglobin, which correlates with the oxygen saturation. So on a beat-to-beat -beat heartbeat, you can see how much oxygen a patient has in his blood, which is a very important thing for an anesthesiologist to know. You can imagine working in an office without that monitor. Just the archaic ways that we would know that a patient was okay was the color of blood. Ooh. <laughs> and whether you saw the chest moving or not, and you had a, you know, a steth buried under all kinds of surgical blankets and whatever, and you could barely hear that. So a pulse oximeter was incredible in making all types of surgery much safer, but particularly off of surgery. Second innovation that made a huge difference in all types of surgery, but really was the primary innovation to move forward office-based anesthesia and therefore office-based surgery was the development of a drug called propofol. Milk of amnesia. Milk of amnesia. And propofol is classed as a sedative hypnotic. Now, in anesthesiology, no matter whether you're in an office or you're in a hospital, whether you're using a type of anesthesia called conscious sedation or general anesthesia, you have to initially put the patient to sleep. And the gold standard for that up until propofol was a drug called sodium pentothal. And sodium pentothal was horrible for office practice. It wasn't that great for hospital-based practice either, but the problem with pentothal was it was very depressing of both respiration, blood pressure, very difficult to control, long time to wake up, and most important for office surgery, at least 75-80% of the people you give it to are going to wake up nauseous. And you can't send a nauseous patient out in the street after having done an office procedure, and that presents all kinds of problems relative to your work schedule, you know, how yeah. you can actually do a number of cases. So the advent of propofol was revolutionary for an anesthesiologist in general, and particularly for anyone that wanted to do any kind of office procedure. So let's talk about how this affected you personally, because I got a piece from the book that um, not only did you administer, but you were trying some some of these things as well. So let's talk, give us the stories about that. You have a rehab experience. Is, is that what I saw in the book or is that not an accurate thing? You oh, oh no, that's very accurate. You know, <laughs> again, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Obviously, I had done my share of drugs during the music business, mm -hmm. but once I became a doctor, I cleaned myself up. And I basically, you know, maybe I smoked a little pot, but that was about it. Right. That's not a real drug. Let's I don't think so. I agree. It's a medicine. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad you're in agreement on that. Mm -hmm. At any rate, one day, a 
anesthesiologist that I was working with. He and I were sort of partners. I had started this anesthesia business, and I created a little partnership to do a big abortion facility in New York. There was a big contract coming up. I needed some other anesthesiologists, and this guy was my friend. He had a girlfriend in Switzerland, and I had to take him to the airport. And on the way to the airport, he's messing around in his bag, and a vial of fentanyl falls out on the floor of the car. And now fentanyl was very well known to us because mm -hmm. that it's an anesthetic narcotic. Right. Essentially, it was the narcotic of choice. It had great dynamics, very mm -hmm. short-acting, very right. strong. Quick on, quick off. Right. right. Mm -hmm. But only IV or IM, no oral dynamics there or anything like that. Mm -hmm. What are you doing with that? He said, oh, you never tried it? <laughs> I said, no. He said, the only problem is you got to pop it. You can't snort it or, yeah. or, or drink it. You got to pop it. He said, try it. You'll like it. I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, I left it at that. Mm -hmm. You know, we were drug doctors. <laughs> so one day <laughs> I took a little home <laughs> or whatever mm -hmm. and I tried it. And of course I liked it. Of course. And so that started about maybe a year of socially getting it and doing it at home and mixing it with a little Versed, which is the liquid Valium. Mm -hmm. But of course, since you could only use it injectably, I had this sick idea that as long as I skin popped it, you know, I didn't put it intravenously, right. I couldn't be an addict, you know. Oh, I'm okay. smart. I'm an yeah. anesthesiologist. I know how to control these things. Mm -hmm. Then one day, I was at work, and I was particularly bored or something, and I decided, uh, well, yeah, I should try a little here. It'll make the day go easier. One thing led to another, and I became seriously addicted to fentanyl. About a year later... During a case at a uh, plastic surgeon's office, I nearly killed myself, and I ended up in rehab four days later. <laughs> and came out of that and uh, drug-free? Yeah, well, yeah, came out of that drug-free, mm -hmm. and, and actually, my story is a great story in that I got it. I was a survivor. I went through extensive treatment and therapy, what I had to do as a, an impaired physician, I immediately signed up before I even got out of rehab. The uh, state of New York. Yeah, New York has, is really great. It's really it. great. Yeah. I didn't know about it. Actually, I went to a uh, rehab in Arizona, a place called Sierra Tucson. Mm -hmm. And the medical director there knew about this program in New York. And he said, let's sign you up, you know, right now. Mm -hmm. They have a great program. You'll be able to continue to practice. They'll monitor you, put you into different kinds of therapy groups, drug testing, whatever you need. And so uh, I went into that. But I was an office-based anesthesiologist. I carried my own drugs. I took care of my own drugs. Yeah. And so I never should have gone back into that kind of a practice. Right. Because classically, they tell you, don't go around the drugs and everything. But that was what I did. I was able to do it for close to another 15 years, not good, without ever without having problem. another problem. Mm -hmm. You know, so I consider myself a, a survivor in that way. And I went through years of individual therapy, group therapy, doctors groups. And then I actually went out and spoke a little bit to I'm try sure. and help others because it's a tough problem. And particularly if you're an anesthesiologist, you know, it's like an occupational <laughs> hazard. You read every so often about an anesthesia resident dead in a bathroom, sitting on a toilet with a needle in his arm. There was a huge problem when I was in school with uh, a couple of people at the hospital across the street from our pharmacy school, three or four of them, all propofol addicts. And it was it propofol. Was 
propofol. And that was the part that was the, the craziest to us is like, why that drug versus any yeah, of the that, others that, that were was, around? No, when I was an anesthesiologist, it was narcotics. Yeah. It wasn't propofol. As a matter of fact, when propofol came to be, and when I decided to create a treatment for Michael using propofol, mm -hmm. I looked far and wide for every study I could possibly find to see what the addiction potential was. And believe it or not, back then, there were no articles on it, mm -hmm. and, and they didn't think it had addiction potential. Of course, they weren't considering anesthesiologists who tried <laughs> everything. I mean, when I was an anesthesiologist, there was an attending, and I would watch him, and he, you know, you're sitting at the head of the bed, <laughs> In general anesthesia, a lot of times you're running a patient on gas. You have a patient who's intubated, and, mm -hmm. and you're running them on gas. And this guy, you know, every half hour or so, he'd unhook the hose, <laughs> take a couple of hits himself, and then just put the hose back. I was like, what, are you kidding me, man? Right. <laughs> gas? I would assume now, just for the listeners, that modern anesthesiology probably has this as an outlier, but less less the norm. What is, what's your vote on that? Maybe uh, it's You know, it was one guy out of hundreds. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Okay, good. Every, every I don't want to give anybody the bad No, 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 no. Listen, every, no, no. But every specialty's got... People oh, yeah, who are definitely. probably shouldn't be there's people, there. There's vitamin guys that are taking their vitamins and making their concoctions to get through the day. So yeah, no question trust, about yeah. that. No question about so that. So you name drop a young man named Michael. So let's talk about going from where you were to this partnership and how it ended. And let's, so let's hear this story. This one's a good one. I think. Yeah. So I became this office-based anesthesiologist. And when I decided that was what I would be, I had to pick a surgeon to approach. I didn't know who to approach or how to really deal with it. And I was about a month or two uh, before the end of my residency. And I was in the uh, doctor's lounge reading the New York Post. And I read page six of the Post, which is the gossipy page. Mm -hmm. And I read where Michael Jackson had gone to see his favorite New York plastic surgeon, Dr. So-and-so. Well, Dr. So-and-so happened to be in the hospital that I was in. <laughs> and I knew he was a pretty cool guy. And although I really didn't care about Michael at all. Not your type of music, right? I, not so much. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I respected him For and sure. I thought he was unbelievable, but I wanted mm -hmm. a job. That was my main thing at that point. You know, everybody else was going into like other residencies, fellowships, jobs in this group, that group, and I had nothing. So I figure, okay, this is the guy I'm going to approach. And, and I concocted a thing. I talk about it in the book and I approach him and he buys it hook, line, and sinker. And I become his director of anesthesia. Eight years later, and this is how the book begins, I get a call from him that we have a special patient tomorrow. And he plays a whole little game with me, but <laughs> the special patient is Michael Jackson coming back after all those years. And so it was for just a small cosmetic procedure, but it was our procedure to have, to talk to the patient. You know, I always spoke to the patient the night before to get the medical history, let him know what I was going to do. And I had my own idea about office anesthesia and what I could do. I felt, you know, an anesthesiologist is a weird thing. We don't treat disease. Mm -hmm. We facilitate what a surgeon does. Mm -hmm. But why couldn't we create a unique experience ourselves? We had very powerful drugs, which did really interesting things to the brain. If I mixed my drugs right, and if I put a patient under headphones with spiritually uplifting, non-worded music, and if I prepared that patient the night before and gave them a creative visualization to work with and then spoke to them afterwards with a little bit of follow-up, why can't I give them a, a unique experience right. unto themselves that has nothing to do with the surgery, has nothing to do with the surgeon? And that's what I did. 
Michael calls. We go through our little routine. I tell him I'm going to use music. He says, I've used music before. Can I bring my own? <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> you got to use mine. What was his music? What would he want? I didn't even yeah, ask Come him. on. I didn't even that ask been great. I didn't even ask Well, no. What was very important for the experience, mm -hmm. there's music that will bring out emotion. Right. You know, we now call it new age music. Mm -hmm. It wasn't called that back then. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it brings out emotion and, and it takes you places within your mind you know, it could be a jangly place if you mm -hmm. use the wrong music, or it could be a very calming place. Right. And I knew I had music that worked. In time, we could use his music. And we <laughs> did, mm -hmm. you know, as time went on. But initially, it had to be my music. We did the procedure that day. We sort of got along, and then I started getting these late-night phone calls. Michael loves to call people at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. Hey, Rat. What are you doing? <laughs> what am I doing, man? I got seven o'clock. Okay, it's three o'clock in the morning. What do you think I'm doing? You know, and but you take uh, the call because yeah, I take the call because it was King of Pop. It was Michael, and right. you know, I liked him, mm -hmm. and he liked me. He hadn't ever met a doctor like me. The reason being, I was a real music guy. Right? You know, I was no bullshit, and we could compare notes. Yep. And he was very interested in some of my early experiences right. with Pink Floyd and on the road, and you know, and of course, I was fascinated by his musical life and so we were able to develop a real special relationship and then he started spending this was in late 94 and then in late 95 he started spending a lot of time in new york because he was slated to do two nights at the beacon mm -hmm. for a special to be filmed by hbo and that's when he reached out to me to help him the sleep propofol connection with mm -hmm. michael jackson let's talk about that okay so um he came to new york to do this hbo special and he was rehearsing a lot. And he was coming into the office for various things and not looking great. And he was eating very poorly. And his state of dehydration was somewhat profound because yeah. he just didn't drink enough. And then they were rehearsing him very hard. So he was constantly complaining. The show was slated for December. I was having dinner in the city with my parents at my apartment. The phone rang. It's Michael. Starts off okay. And then he's hysterical crying. Please help me. Please help me. Be one of my doctors. Help me. Help me. I didn't really know what to do at the time. He had plenty of doctors. He didn't need another doctor. Right. But he had this thing where he related to me and felt like maybe I could help him. And then, so then I tried to think, how can I help him? What is this guy's problems, really? And his problems were he was a horrible insomniac. His mind never stopped. Right, hence the 3 a.m. phone calls. Exactly. Mind never stopped, couldn't stop it. Every doctor in the world tried to treat him with the classical treatment, sleeping pills and anti-anxiety medication. Right. And classically what happens, you become addicted. Right. You know, and then you become tolerant, and then you're in a worse position than when you started. Mm -hmm. and, and some of them had tried various things to transition him, but nothing had worked. So sleep was a major problem. Hydration was a major problem. Nutrition was a major problem. What can I do? Is there some kind of treatment that I could create that would somehow help these three conditions? Mm -hmm. I knew the dynamics of propofol. He came in eight years after I had started using propofol. I'd used propofol on every case. So I was very comfortable with propofol, and I knew that propofol could be part of my treatment. And if I could put him to sleep, quote-unquote, with propofol, for a few hours, I knew he would wake up feeling good. I yeah. knew he enjoyed the 
experience of anesthesia for whatever reason. But more importantly, I could hydrate the hell out of them Mm -hmm. and I could find all kinds of supplements, Mm -hmm. you know, to throw into the IV. Mm -hmm. So I tank them up a little bit and, and at least I temporarily fix these three problems. And so I spoke with some of his other doctors. They agreed it seemed like a good solution. Cosmetic surgeon agreed to let me use the office and, and we set up some treatments. Unfortunately, it was too little too late and he ended up in the hospital on that little run. Mm-hmm. But then years later, when he was going on tour, uh, he asked me to come on tour and to help him in that way. I always intended it to be temporary and I tried to transition him to a million different things. And I always did it as a spiritual type experience, the way I just explained it to you. Music. You know, music, creative visualizations, everything. I did the treatment about 25 times over an eight-year period of time. And in my hands, Mm -hmm. he never missed a gig. So how did it transition from you being the guy there to what happened to him and ultimately caused him to die? So I was with Michael every time he ever played publicly from the... African part of the history tour Mm -hmm. in late 97 until the last time he ever played publicly, which was the 9-11 concert at RFK Stadium in October 2001. He never played publicly again after that. The This Is It concerts was supposed to be his comeback. comeback. By that point, my life had changed. First of all, I'm not sure if I ever would have done it for him again after I left him in 2002. Because, again, it wasn't meant to be a permanent part of his life. Mm -hmm. That was not the point here. First of all, I controlled it. I would only do it when I felt it was absolutely necessary to get him to do a concert or an important photo shoot. Again, 25 times in eight years is not a lot of times. Right. You know, so it was very tightly. I mean, it's certainly a lot. I, I haven't, I've been alive for 40 years and I've had it twice. So <laughs> it is a lot for sure. But Right. But they, mm-hmm. you know, I, guess, him, I yes. guess the comparison that I'm making is at the end, supposedly he had it 60 days in a row. Wow. Which would have killed him anyway. You know, so that was not what it was meant for. Mm-hmm. That was not what should have happened. And I'm a trained professional. So did he even reach out to you or did... did, did well, my life had changed. As yeah. I said, my life had changed. Mm-hmm. I had expanded my medical practice into the fertility business, in vitro fertilization, things yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. And initially, we thought that insurance companies would have to pay for at least one cycle in New York State. Mm-hmm. Well, as it turned out, insurance companies didn't have to pay for a cycle. And so 99.9% of the fertility docs said, okay, we'll go to a fee-for-service model and you'll get paid for the anesthesia or whatever. But I had one very, very prominent doctor who said, screw them. (laughs) Every woman deserves a right to have a baby. Mm -hmm. Most of these problems are gynecological. We're billing it as gynecological surgery, Ah. and you could go along with it. You could not go along with it. I don't really care. This is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I went along with it. The guy's office was worth a lot of money. I built him an operating room. He was also an endometriosis expert. We did 10, 12 cases a week in his office. Mm. And I figured, I'm not overbilling. I'm, I'm giving good anesthesia. If something happens, it's his ass, not mine. Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. my ass. So, <laughs> so this is the fraud charges, and then you got to uh, have a sleepover camp. Tell me about that. You got indicted. What, what yeah, so basically what happened was um, when I set up my fertility business, mm-hmm. I, I needed to set up a billing office. 
because most of what I did prior to that was cosmetic surgery, which was fee-for-service. Mm -hmm. But fertility, we were billing insurance companies and, and just gynecology in general when we were doing laparoscopies for endometriosis. That was all uh, legitimately billed with insurance companies. So my father had been very successful in the family business. And he had nothing to do, and he was in his 50s, and he retired. I said, look, I'll set up an office for you close to your house in Long Island, teach you how to do these insurance forms. You do them. He said, great. And get out of the house every day, et cetera. Yeah. So the feds, when they went after this doctor, Lowerson, they knew of my involvement as the anesthesia, and they knew of my father's involvement. So when they came to me with subpoenas, and they realized the involvement of anesthesia, they said, if you don't cooperate with us, we're going to go after your father. Gotcha. And I was ready for it to end anyway, and I realized this was not the right thing for me to do. And so I decided to cooperate with the government, and I became the primary witness against him, which led to two major federal trials and years of working with the feds and, of course, being urine-tested for drugs. And, you know, and I was promised that uh, if I cooperated and, and did the right thing, it would work out for me. But unfortunately, that promise was not kept because the judge didn't like me. As I said, there were two trials. It was supposed to be one trial, ended up a hung jury. And in these trials, I was the star witness. And the judge allowed these very heavy lawyers who were the defense lawyers for this Dr. Lowerson, important lawyers, famous lawyers, to beat me up for days at a time and to go through my life in excruciatingly horrible detail. And the judge heard so much over two trials, I later found out from the FBI guys that I had become friendly with, he just didn't like me. <laughs> and he, he decided that I had to go to jail. Not necessarily for the fraud, right? Because but the prosecution, for some of my earlier behavior, right? The prosecution <laughs> even said that you shouldn't go to jail, right? That was the whole thing. Oh man, yeah. mm -hmm. I had one of the best letters you could ever get from the Southern District, tough, tough yeah. people, Southern District of New York, mm -hmm. saying, you know, this guy should be applauded because there's something in medicine called fudging, mm -hmm. and I had seen it all through my career. Mm -hmm. A girl or a guy walks into a plastic surgeon's office, wants a nose job. Mm -hmm. Because they cosmetically don't like the nose. Right. And the surgeon will say, oh, yeah, you know, well, yeah, you have a little bit of a deviated septum. So yeah. we'll just bill it as a deviated septum. Don't say anything. Right. Happens all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, and nothing bad happens to the patient or the surgeon. And, and many times the insurance company pays. But here, obviously, that wasn't the case. Yeah. And uh, the judge didn't really care. Probation, prosecutor. I had all kinds of letters. I had yeah. been doing charity work in Africa. But he decided that I was a co-leader of the conspiracy. He actually raised my points to be at sentencing to be able to send me to jail. I didn't go to jail forever. Mm -hmm. You know, I only went to jail for four months. And then I was home in my apartment with a bracelet, a monitoring bracelet for four months, which is jail too. For sure. And then it was three years of uh, supervised release. Mm -hmm. But let me say this, one day of jail is jail. <laughs> yeah. Especially for a guy like you. I, hey, I, you man, know, you know, like a rock too. and roll. Rock and roll doctor? doctor. Yeah, no. And yeah. nobody could understand why I was there. Although there were other white collar guys there. Mm -hmm. But let me say this, you know, and I'm not recommending jail for anybody. Please. But it was a defining experience. And I got a lot of interesting stuff out of the experience. So that's uh, an extremely 
fascinating life story that you've got so far. And of course, it's not over and you're doing lots of great stuff around here. Let's talk about the rock doc and what you're doing with that right now. So after I got out of jail, I was still living in the city and I could be a doctor. I had signed a deal with the uh, medical people, uh, Office of Professional Medical Conduct. I could be a doctor under supervised conditions, but I really had had it. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I had some friends living up here. And so after a couple of years, I decided to move up to Woodstock. Mm -hmm. uh, it just seemed so appropriate mm -hmm. anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, though, another big part of my story is charity. Mm -hmm. And it's a really important part of my story. It started quite by accident on a trip my wife and I took to Africa on a photographic safari. And we ended up going to this little indigenous Samburo village, which are like the Maasai, you know, the tall warrior. I wanted to go to a real indigenous village because I had been studying with a shaman, with a Native American. And so I wanted to experience an African shaman or a Native American village. And I had asked the guide who was this wonderful African woman, and she knew of a little village that had never seen really Westerners, mud and dung huts and spears. And I convinced her to let us go there. And it was this unbelievable experience. And she had told them that I was a famous doctor who maybe would come back and help one day, but don't bother the doctor. And at the end, we're getting ready to leave, and the chief comes running with a sick kid. And she's arguing with, don't bother him. But of course, I had to go look at the kid. Yeah. And it was an amazing experience for me because I had no tools. I had nothing. You know, I made a diagnosis, and we had all kinds of antibiotics and capsules, and we had to go back, and I emptied out all the capsules, and we, we wrapped medicine in paper and tried to figure out milligram per kilogram what the kid would need and mm -hmm. I went back and through all kinds of translations tried to tell the chief and didn't know if I did any good and uh, six months later the chief sent me his spear which was an amazing thing because in that culture that's how he was recognized as a man by the tribe mm. uh, when you get to a certain age you're in the warrior class in that culture you have to go out by yourself with a spear and come back with the hair of a lion, showing that you killed a lion by yourself. And the chief gave me his spear with the hair of the lion on it. I have it. I have it here at home. It's still wow. one of my most prized possessions. And I was hooked. And I spent the next five years. Trying to kill a lion? Yes. And I never <laughs> accomplished it. <laughs> no, uh, creating a semi-sustainable uh, clinic for them in the middle of nowhere. I mm -hmm. mean, 80 miles from the Somali border in the middle of Samburu land. Uh, and it was tough. And that started me on a whole charity tiff. When I eventually got up to Woodstock, I read an article in the local paper, the Woodstock Times, about a local baker, Dan Leader of Bread of Alone. Mm -hmm. And he had been to South Africa and was totally taken by the AIDS thing, yeah. had done something, baking bread with HIV moms, wanted to do something. I was ready to do something in the charitable world again. And ultimately, he and I created this charity called International Community Bakeries. We created three micro bakeries in areas in the poorest, where the poorest of the poor live. Right. There's the poor, and then there's the poorest of the poor. The poorest of the poor have almost no access to services. And so uh, we created these micro bakeries, uh, two in the townships of South Africa, and one in arguably one of the worst uh, neighborhoods in the Western Hemisphere uh, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And the idea is employment, train disadvantaged youth. You know, one of the biggest problems in society today is disadvantaged youth aged maybe 13 to 40 mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's how terror comes into our world. These are the people that become terrorists yeah. because they're so bitter and they have no access to anything. So train disadvantaged youth. Make better bread for kids. Mm-hmm. In some of these places, that's all kids get to eat is bread. So if you could throw some more nutrition into the bread you make, you've done something really great. But the most important thing that these bakeries did is create model sustainable businesses for those kind of areas. You know, the charity world, too many people have their hand out. There's not enough to go around. So it's it's much more important, I think, to go into these areas and find something that you can teach people that they can then... Yeah, teach them to fish. Yeah, right. well, mm-hmm. we... we we stole that, mm-hmm. you know, we, teach we said, bake bread. Mm-hmm. yeah, you teach them to bake bread, they can mm-hmm. feed the village. So that now has become a really important thing. And I think I would encourage everybody to do some charity work of whatever kind they can. You'll be amazed at how good you'll feel to help somebody else. Gives yourself a sense of purpose and mission and drive and, and everything and else. Everything else. <laughs> So what a great conversation that we had with you here, Neil. You know, obviously one of my favorite first names. And then you're also uh, very clever and always showing us through your life that, you know, you just open that door, knock on that door, and uh, the opportunities uh, don't come to you. You go to them. Don't let people convince you you can't. If you think you can, you can, because it's all up to you. Mm -hmm. Also, let me just say, if you want the book. <laughs> yes. I was going to just ask you, where can we find it? Uh, you could find it in a couple of places. If you would like an autographed copy, mm. go to N-E-I-L-R-A-T-N-E-R-R-O-C-K-D-O-C. That's it? <laughs> dot com. I've done this before, Dana. <laughs> That's my website. Go to the far left. You'll see buy the book. Fill out the form. I'll autograph it any way you want. But it's also available on Amazon in multiple formats, including an audiobook read by me, which is kind of interesting because I do the Michael voice and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> so you might want that. So Amazon all formats or my website. And since we are in Woodstock, may I say April 6th, I will be starting a new show on WDST called This Week in Rock. Please tune in to listen. You may be surprised. 3 o'clock on Saturday, repeated 11 a.m. on Sunday. And thank you, Neil. My pleasure. For asking me to do this podcast. My pleasure. I'm going to just give you a little bit of a bump here. Oh, bump. If you've never been in Neil's store, apothecary, here in Woodstock, you're making a big mistake because it's <laughs> do the, it or we're gonna it's, beat you up. It's the only <laughs> drugstore slash pharmacy that you should use. Get away I from those that. big the chains. Chain. Get the personal attention and the great products that Neil provides. Thanks, Neil. So how'd you like that interview, huh? A little bit different from what I've been droning on about, about supplements and such. I would encourage everybody to go visit his website, neilratnerrockdoc.com. His name is not spelled correctly like mine. His is spelled N-E-I-L, Ratner, R-A-T-N-E-R, rockdoc.com. Take a look at his book and his charity is listed there. Contact him if you'd like to donate to his charity. I'm sure he would appreciate that. He's on all the social channels. He's on Facebook and on Twitter. He's at rockdoc.com. 10. Thank you for joining us, and I hope to bring you many more great interviews like this with so many interesting people in the health, wellness, and Woodstock space. <laughs>